Father, we thank you for this good news of the gospel that reminds us that you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and you have transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, we thank you for the living hope, the living hope that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that the grave no longer has reign or power over those who look to him and call on his name in faith, that you have saved us and you have secured us as your own. So fathers, we open your word together this morning. We ask that this good news would once again resonate in our hearts, that you would captivate us once again with the wonder and the mystery of the good news of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, that you would speak to us today words that would edify your church and bring glory to your name. Father, sanctify us today in the truth. Your word is truth. Will you speak it to our hearts now? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. All right, you can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, I'm gonna invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Colossians chapter one is where we're gonna spend our time together this morning. And a lot going on in this building last week. And so just in case you missed this, we wanna make sure you're aware. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles under the seats in front of you. There's a rack underneath each chair and there should be a Bible underneath every other seat in this room. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Feel free to take that with you. And we hope that that's an encouragement to you and that you can use that week to week as you join in with us for worship. And if you're newer with our church family, our MO as, as, as a congregation when it comes to preaching and teaching the Bible is we are firm believers in what we call expositional preaching, meaning um, we believe that the Bible is best taught and what is best for the long-term health of a congregation is to work through the Bible verse by verse. And so 70, 80% of the time, that's gonna involve working through entire books of the Bible. And so this morning, um, we're starting a, a new study of another book of the Bible, which is the book of Colossians. And so Colossians 1, verses one through 14 is what we'll look at this morning. And Lord willing, we will be camped out right here in Colossians throughout the summer. Now, over the last few years, there's been an increase in books and podcasts and documentaries that detail the collapse of high-profile Christian leaders and churches. And, and oftentimes these work expose scandal and abuse and corruption within the body of Christ. And they bring to light problems that unfortunately for far too long were allowed to be swept under the rug. And it's important that we address these things. It's important that we not allow corruption to reign within the Lord's church. But over the last year, my perspective on addressing these things changed a little bit because um, about this time last year, I had the opportunity to spend a few days with a church leader who had been in one of these prominent churches, who was actually one of the whistleblowers that exposed some of the corruption in his own congregation where most of the rest of the world saw nothing but a picture from success on the outside, he saw some evil and sinister things on the inside, and he took the very bold, very courageous step to blow the whistle and to expose some of the problems within his own church. And his church, the where he had blown the whistle, um, was one of the products of one of these podcast series. And so um, he, it, personally, on a personal level, 
was really being lauded as a hero, um, someone who was brave, someone who was bold, and someone who had taken the step to expose much-needed problems, not just within his church, but problems that tend to persist among the American church at large. But whenever I asked his perspective about his thoughts on this particular podcast, I was surprised by his comments because even though he was being heralded as a hero, he was not encouraged by the podcast at all. And in fact, he felt that it was ultimately going to be used to do more harm than good. And when I pressed him on this a little bit and asked him why, this was his perspective. He said, I expose the problems within my church because I have a deep love for Jesus and his church. He said, but the problem with a lot of these online voices is they expose the problems in the church because they love attention and they know that failure sells. And I just wonder right now, kind of in our culture of instant critique, culture of instant cancellation, culture of instant inflammatory pushback to anything that we even perceive to be a problem, I wonder, is it possible that our zeal for the correction of the church is robbing us of our affection for the church? Now, how quickly we forget that the church is called the bride of Christ, Husbands, I want you to think about this for just a moment. How would you feel if every time you were with a group of friends, they did nothing but nitpick every failure and flaw of your wife? Ladies, how would you feel about being married to a husband whose friends wrote a new blog post every single day about the failures of your past? And again, it's not that we should not address problems within the church. It's not that we should not correct corruption within the church. We need to, we have to, and we absolutely should. But I fear that as a church culture at large, we have become far too careless in our critique of the church. And we do this very, very effortlessly. We have a consumer-driven church culture where in many ways we shop for churches like cars, and then we go online and we evaluate them like restaurants. So if the service was good, the church gets five stars. If the service was bad, you only get one star. Got to park close to the building, five stars, right? Got to park down the park row, maybe two and a half. And so we get into this constant culture of evaluation and critique. Again, do we need to address problems and abuses in the church? Absolutely. But in our culture of constant critique, I think we need to be reminded Church, we need to be reminded that the church of Jesus Christ is not a necessary evil to be tolerated. The church of Jesus Christ is a heavenly good that should be celebrated. That for even for all of its flaws, even for all of its failures, the church is still God's plan to advance his gospel to the nation. So how do we carry out correction in the church without losing our affection for the church? That's a question that we're going to be answering all summer long by studying the book of Colossians. Colossians is a short letter written by the Apostle Paul, as best as we can tell, in about the early 60s AD. Um, About a decade before, the Apostle Paul had a ministry in Ephesus, and the gospel uh, ministry there was effective and spread out to the point that it moved about 100 miles east into Colossae, which was located in Asia Minor, so roughly in the vicinity of modern-day Turkey. And a key emphasis in the book of Colossians is the lordship of Jesus Christ. This letter outlines Christ's authority over all of creation, and it details the victory that God has secured over all of his enemies. Paul addresses these topics because Colossae was being infiltrated by worldly philosophies that deluded people into believing the knowledge that they had in Jesus was not enough. So false teachers were coming into Colossae to 
tell the people that the knowledge they had in Jesus was insufficient. There was a knowledge that needed to go beyond Jesus. They were promising a fullness that went beyond Christ. They were offering a freedom that went beyond the freedom that was being offered by Jesus. But even as Paul writes to correct the church, this letter is dripping with his love and affection for this congregation. So his letter begins with this expression of praise and thanksgiving. So what we're gonna see in verses one through 14 together this morning is that the good news, the gospel message drives us to give thanks for all that God has done as we continue to pray for all that he will do. Do we need to do the work of correction in the church? Yes and amen. But friends, we can never lose our affection for the church. And that's what we see in this letter. So Colossians chapter one, let's read Paul's greeting here, verses one and two. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother to the saints. Everybody say saints. It's an important word. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our father. What drives Paul's gratitude, what drives Paul's thanksgiving, what drives his affection for these people is the work of the gospel that the Lord had already done in him. The good news of the gospel was the foundation for all of Paul's gratitude and thanksgiving. So as people who are saturated and immersed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see from these first two verses that we should be people who proclaim the welcome of the gospel. Paul's greeting proclaims the welcome of the gospel. Verses one and two, Paul introduces himself as an apostle. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, an apostle was someone who was given specific authority by Christ to represent him and to proclaim him as the foundation of the early church was being established. And so right away, just by identifying himself as an apostle, we see the extraordinary power of the gospel. Because if you don't know Paul's story, he was not always Paul the apostle. Before this, he was Saul the oppressor of the church. Paul so hated Christians that in his role previously as a Jewish Pharisee, he was actually the one that was leading the charge of persecution against the church. And yet after he miraculously encounters the risen and resurrected Jesus Christ, Jesus sets him apart for a new purpose and calling and mission. And so Saul is no longer the persecutor of the church. Saul is now actually being persecuted because of his role in the church. He's become so faithful to Jesus as the one who formerly persecuted his church that he's actually writing this letter from prison on account of his faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's testimony is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his servants, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and insolent opponent, but I receive mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And the key word in that passage is formerly. Everybody say formerly. It's a really important word. This is a really important word. These sins might have defined Paul's past, but because of the act of grace and mercy of God in his life, these are no longer the sins that define his present. He identifies himself as an apostle, and then he identifies all of his recipients as saints. Again, if you're not familiar with that term, the word saints just means very simply holy ones. 
And in many circles, you know, the only way that someone can achieve sainthood is by living an exceptional or extraordinary life. So in the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, this term is only used to recognize a unique and extraordinary class of individuals. But that's not at all how the Bible uses this term. Every time that the Apostle Paul uses the term saints, dozens of times through the New Testament, it's always in the plural, never in the singular, and it's never to just highlight an extraordinary class of people. He uses it as a designation for every single person who's a follower of Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, you're no longer a sinner, you're a saint. You are one of the holy ones, and it's not because of your own personal holiness, It's because of the holiness that has been purchased for you and has been deposited to you by Jesus Christ. He calls them saints. Paul the apostle, writing to the saints at Colossae, he then extends his formal greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace go hand in hand with one another, and they're both important for us to understand the God who has called us to himself. Grace is God's unmerited favor. By offering us salvation, God has freely offered to us a gift that we could never earn and we definitely did not deserve. But God has not just offered us grace, God has also offered us peace. The Hebrew term here for peace would be shalom. It speaks to the wholeness of life and the fullness of life, to contentment and satisfaction that we can find in our relationship with the Lord. And it's important for you and I to have an understanding that God has extended both grace and peace because sometimes I I fear that many of us fall under the deception that while God has forgiven us and shows us grace, he's only doing it begrudgingly. You know, what we think of God, I think sometimes is, yes, he's the father who welcomes the prodigal home and we're back in the house, but we're grounded. And, and that's, that's kind of what we wrestle with. You know, I think sometimes we, we think of God like, you know, he's, he's like the parent whose kid has gotten in trouble at school for the umpteenth time. And, and he's like, you know, I really shouldn't let you play in your game tonight, but I guess I will. You better be thankful for the grace that I'm showing. Parents, that's what we do, right? Probably shouldn't let you do this, but I will. Be thankful for it. And that's not who our God is. That's not who our God is. Our God is not the God who's in heaven saying, I have shown you grace, so you better be grateful. He's the God who says, I have shown you grace and I want you to be joyful. I want you to enjoy this. He shows us grace and he shows us peace. The same welcome that God extended to Paul, the same welcome that Paul extended to the saints at Colossae is the same welcome the Lord extends to us today. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So we extend, we proclaim the welcome of the gospel. Now, verses three through eight, these next two sections, understand if you, you're not familiar with, with the New Testament, if you're a grammar person, the Apostle Paul is the master of the run-on sentence. I mean, his sentences just go on, and Energizer Bunny sentences, just on and on and on and on. So hang tight with me. We're going to break this down a little bit at a time. Verses three through eight, Paul prays, we always, everybody say always, We always thank God. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul's 
letter here shows us that we should be people who proclaim the welcome of the gospel. He also shows us we should be people who pray for the witness of the gospel. Verses three and four, he, he says to these people, every time I pray for you, I thank God for you. Every time I pray for you, I thank God for you. Ever since we heard about your faith and your love, we thank God for you in prayer. Now, here's what's really amazing about that statement. We have absolutely no record that the Apostle Paul ever visited or would visit this church in person. In fact, Paul's writing these words from a Roman prison 1,300 miles away. Now, just think about the, the miracle of all of this. 1,300 miles away in a Roman prison, Paul has heard the testimony of the faith and the love of this congregation. Now, I did a rough just approximation this past week, just trying to draw by comparison. 1,300 miles, that is roughly the distance from Beaufort to Maine. Some of y'all forgot Maine was a state, right? Like it's way up there, disconnected. And so, so just, just imagine this here. You, you, we're pre-printing press, we're pre-digital media, we're pre-Pony Express here, right? And yet the testimony of this church is so loud. The testimony of this church is so strong. Their faith and their love are so strong that Paul's hearing about it in a Roman prison 1,300 miles away. The, the news of this church was carried to him by Epaphras. It's likely that Epaphras had been an early convert of the Apostle Paul during his ministry in Ephesus a decade before. We know from this letter that, that Epaphras was one of the primary voices responsible for establishing the church right here in Colossae. And, and so what we have here is, is a really good example of what we would call positive gossip. The, these are the types of things we want people saying about the church, right? I mean, honestly, has anyone ever left a church because it was too faithful and too loving? These are the types of things we want people saying, and their testimony is so strong that Paul's hearing about it from jail. It's shot across the empire. And what was at the foundation of their love? What was at the foundation of their faith? That answers in verse five. The foundation of their faith and their love was the hope laid up for them in heaven. These brothers and sisters, they were focused on eternity. They set their eyes on heaven. They set their eyes on the fullness of the kingdom. They set their eyes on what was to come. And it was the driving force that undergirded their faith and their love. And there's a cutesy popular phrase that's uh, most regularly attributed to Oliver Wendell Holmes that often gets thrown around. And, and that statement is that some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Who's ever heard these words before? Now the sentiment behind this phrase and, and the kind of the, the under, uh, undermine, like kind of the, the, the principle that's under this, it's a little bit of a shot at religious people is, hey, some of these religious people, they're so mindlessly focused on some eternal paradise. They're so mindlessly focused on the life they're gonna get after death that they've become completely ineffective in, in the world here and now. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, decades ago, he pushed back against this. And he makes the argument that there's no such thing as being too heavenly minded. I wanna read an excerpt here from Mere Christianity. Lewis wrote, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. 
the apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Listen to this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Listen, there's no one who is too heavenly minded. There's no one who's too heavenly minded. A church does not become faithless or loveless by thinking about heaven too much. We become faithless and loveless by thinking of heaven far too little. Listen, you wanna strengthen your faith? Think about heaven. You wanna strengthen your hope? Think about heaven. You wanna strengthen your love? Think about heaven. You wanna strengthen your fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ? Think about heaven. I I think this is God's just good sense of humor. That brother or sister in Christ who's in your community group that you can't stand, I just have to believe God's gonna put them right next to us for eternity. And both of us will look at each other dumbfounded that the other made it, right? Think of heaven. Set your mind on heaven. This is what will strengthen our faith. This is what will strengthen our love. Did Jesus himself not teach us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done? Where? On earth as it is in heaven. No one is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Church, it's it's precisely because we are not heavenly minded enough that we're no earthly good. And listen, I don't know about you, but I, I think we should be aiming to be a church that is known for its faith and its hope and its love. Should we not want the testimony of our congregation to go far beyond our walls to the extent that it actually reaches brothers and sisters in Christ that we've maybe never even met before? A couple months ago, um, I had a a guy that I went to seminary with. We had one class together, um, and we've roughly tried to keep up with each other's churches online, and um, he reached out to me because there was a guy in his congregation that was thinking about planting a church. And so, again, I didn't have a really close relationship with this guy. We only had one class together. But as we jumped on a Zoom call back in April, they took the first 10, 15 minutes, and they said, listen, I know we don't know you very well. I know we don't know your church personally. I know we've never been there in person but we've really been keeping up at a distance from what the Lord has been doing there. And we just see how God has moved in your life and in the life of your congregation and the thing that he's doing in your community. And it's gotten us thinking, maybe God can do that here. And we're gonna plant another church. We're gonna plant a congregation in this community. Listen, church, because of your faith, because of your commitment, because of your love for Jesus, because of your love for the gospel, because of your steadfastness in the church, your presence here, Just your presence here is impacting the faith of other brothers and sisters in Christ that you've never met. And so listen, I'm reading this text this past week, and I can just say this morning, not at all disingenuously, I say this deeply on a personal level. When I think of you, when I think of this church, man, I thank God for you. I'm so, so, so grateful for you. Thank you for your love for Jesus. Thank you for your love for his word Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for how you sacrifice of your time. Thank you for your zeal to see the name of Jesus Christ proclaimed in our community and the nations. We pray for the witness of the gospel here. We pray for the witness of the gospel across the world because that's the work that the Lord is doing. He is making his name known to the ends of the earth. So we thank God for the witness that he's bearing through us and we should always thank God for the witness he's bearing through others. Verses nine through 12, another longer passage here from Paul. Paul writes, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light." So Paul shows us we should be people who proclaim the welcome of the gospel. He shows us we should be people who pray for the witness of the gospel. Third, Paul shows us we should be people who plead for the work of the gospel. Now, these four verses are absolutely loaded. Like four verses, we've got an eight-week sermon series right here. There's a whole lot to to digest here. And so hopefully, you're the 1130 service. You're supposed to be the awake group. Hopefully, you've had plenty of coffee, caffeine by now. We're going to do this rapid fire working through verses 9 through 12 here for just a few moments. Paul prays for several very specific things, and I wanna make sure we touch on each one of these. He prays, second half of verse nine, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Because I hope we understand, like the Lord does not just care very deeply about how we live. He also cares very, very deeply about how we think. There are few more important decisions that we can make on a daily basis than the decision of who gets to shape our thinking. It means the sermons that you listen to, the podcasts that you subscribe to, the books that you read, the conferences that you attend, the entertainment and the media that you consume, the type of knowledge that fills your mind will directly impact the kind of life you live. So Paul doesn't just pray for them to be filled with knowledge in some sort of vague, generic sense. He prays for them to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. And listen, if you want to know the will of God, then your starting place is to know the word of God. Because this is where the will of God is revealed to us. You know, uh, unfortunately, as Western believers, we have this really weird tendency, like a whole industry has been built around this. We have a really weird tendency to talk about discovering the will of God as if it's some sort of Monty Python, like Holy Grail mythical quest. Like it's just some vague, undiscernible mystery that we just got to set our sails and hope that the Lord takes us to the right way. And yes, and amen, there is a sovereign will of God that sometimes is hard to discern and understand what it means for our life. But the testimony of scripture is clear over and over and over again, that the will of God has been clearly revealed to us in his word. The will of God is every command that he's given us to obey. The will of God is is to avoid every sin he calls us to avoid. The will of God is to claim every promise that he calls us to claim. So this is what that means for us. It is God's will for you to love the Lord with all of your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's Mark 12. It is God's will for you to love your enemies and to pray for your persecutors. It's Matthew chapter five. It is God's will for you to rejoice always and pray without ceasing. That's 1 Thessalonians 4. It is God's will for you to be a participant in his global mission, the Great Commission. That's Matthew chapter 28. It is God's will for you to abstain from sexual immorality and to be sanctified. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Every command that God gives us to obey, every sin that he calls us to avoid, every promise that he calls us to claim, all of these things are his will for your life. The will of God, understand, is not just about deciding what college you're supposed to attend or who you're supposed to marry or how many kids you're supposed to have or what job you're supposed to take or what city that you're supposed to live in. Most often we do and understand and we live out the will of God by doing the simple basic things that he calls us to do in his word. 
And this is what happens over time as we walk in faithfulness and obedience to what God has clearly stated to be his will, we gain a clear understanding of his sovereign will as we follow his direction in our lives. He prays for them to be filled with the knowledge of his will, with spiritual wisdom and understanding. If you want to know his will, your starting place is to know his word. And he prays this, verse 10, that we would be filled with this knowledge and wisdom so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So follow the progression here. Again, it begins with your mind. It begins with your thinking. We want to be filled with the knowledge of his will. We want to be filled with spiritual wisdom. We want to be filled with understanding. And it's not just so we can sound smarter when we're gathered together with our Christian friends. That There's a purpose for all of this. And the purpose is that we will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That we will walk and live lives that are pleasing to him. Now, if Paul has prayed for us to be filled with knowledge, to be filled with wisdom, to be filled with understanding, then what naturally follows is that God desires for us to actually live out the truth that we know. So again, it means that we obey what scripture commands, we avoid what scripture forbids, and we live a spirit-empowered life of holiness and righteousness in a way that's pleasing and acceptable to God. And we do this, Paul prays, second half of verse 10, that we'd be bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Understand, as followers of Jesus, belief and behavior always go hand in hand. We can never separate these two. And it's important because sometimes as believers, we tend to divide into two opposite and competing groups. So sometimes in the church, you get the belief group. All right, it's, it's all about what we know. And so the, the complaint of this group is always, we need to go deeper in the word. We gotta do the biblical languages. We need more of that. We need doctrine. We need theology. We need church history. We need stuff that, that makes us feel smarter when we leave. New information that we did not already know. And yes and amen, praise God. Like we need to go driving deep into the word of God, as deep as deep can go, and never ceasing to uncover the mysteries that the Lord has revealed through his word. But sometimes the let's go deeper crowd is the, less, is the least active in actually sharing their faith and actually putting into practice the things that we know. And so then on the opposite side, you got the behavior crowd. And the behavior crowd says, we don't need another Bible study. We don't need to just sit around our holy huddles in our houses. We gotta get out in the world. We gotta make a difference out here. But, but they tend to be untethered from the truth of God's word. And so they begin methods and practices and behaviors that go out of step with what God has revealed in truth. And what really needs to happen with the belief people and the behave people is they need to start a community group together. Like instead of demonizing one another, what we need to learn is like, hey, I need to rejoice in these brothers and sisters who really know how to go deep in God's word. And man, I need to rejoice in these brothers and sisters who are so eager to put these things into practice. We need one another. And we complement one another. And when we work together, this is what builds up the body of Christ. Paul does not pray for them to bear fruit or be filled with knowledge. He prays for them to bear fruit and be filled with knowledge. These two things are not mutually exclusive. They go hand in hand and one complements the other. We do this, verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and, everybody say and, if you're a circle, underline things in your Bible type of person, I would really just encourage you to circle or underline that word, and. We are strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For what purpose? For the purposes of endurance and patience with joy. 
The promise of the Great Commission is the power of God's Spirit would permanently dwell within those who are His. And so here Paul prays that they would be strengthened with all power to, to what end? To the end of endurance and patience with joy. You know, uh, whenever I think of endurance, when I think about somebody who, who just, just makes it through to the end, I mean, just holds on in spite of just horrible circumstances. Whenever I think about endurance, one of my favorite movies is the first Rocky, the first Rocky movie with Sylvester Stallone. And so um, all these were streaming early this year, like Rocky one through four, I was all in like one a weekend for a whole month. Rocky five, I pretend that one wasn't there. Like I just consider that not, not canon, it's separate. If you don't know the Rocky story, you know, he's this underachieving amateur boxer. He's kind of down and out and, and, and sort of in the dumps as a fighter. But then just through this miracle opportunity, sort of as a publicity stunt, he is given as a son of Philadelphia, uh, the opportunity to fight Apollo Creed played by Carl Weathers for, uh, who was the heavyweight champion of the world. And he was this dominant fighter. I mean, it was just gonna be this, this silly, you know, sort of exhibition type of fight. And of course, nobody expects Rocky to do anything. He doesn't belong there. He's not actually qualified for this. It's always a publicity stunt. Nobody thinks he's gonna make it more than 30 seconds with Apollo. And the night before he climbs into the ring, he's talking to his wife, Adrian. And I heard the word Adrian cried out by somebody in the first service. That was an amen, but it was an Adrian. <laughs> and he's sitting down with his, his wife, Adrian, and he tells her, he says, you know, no one's ever gone the distance with Apollo. Like nobody's ever gone 15 rounds with Apollo. His aim wasn't necessarily to win. He said, all I want to do is go the distance. And, and, and so what happens, the fight happens the next day, and Rocky goes 15 rounds with Apollo Creed. Now, he does lose. If you're upset, listen, you think I spoiled that? The movie's 50 years old. Like, that's, that's on you if you've not seen it. It's, it's, a, it's a half century old. I didn't spoil anything for you. He does not win, but he does go the distance. He, he's beaten, he's battered, he's bloodied, he's bruised, but he does go the distance. And you know, right now we're in a cultural moment where I feel like every single day it's a new story. It's a new documentary. It's a new podcast about a pastor who has disqualified himself and whose church has crashed. I feel like it's, it's another story of another high profile follower of Jesus who has gone the route of deconstruction of their faith and deconversion from the faith. And the more I see all of this fall and collapse around us. The more I pray for myself and the more I pray for you, Lord, I just want us to go the distance. God, just help us be faithful to the end. Help us be faithful to the end. But here's what really sets us apart as followers of Jesus. Paul doesn't just pray for us to white knuckle this thing to the finish line. He doesn't just pray that we would be strengthened for endurance. He prays that we would be strengthened for patience with joy. Listen, you want to have a radical testimony as a follower of Jesus Christ? Don't rush through your suffering. You have a radical testimony as a follower of Jesus Christ. Don't wish away. Don't rush through the seasons of suffering. When you and I as followers of Jesus come to the place where we really do understand and believe that every struggle, that every trial, every season of pain, whenever we come to understand and embrace, it really is all serving to make us more like Jesus. We won't trying to rush our way through it. We'll learn to rejoice our way through it. We will endure with patience and joy. You know, you could have a job conceivably for 40 years and earn a retirement and have hated your job for four decades. 
And that's not who God's calling us to be. He's not just calling us to, to make it to the finish line. He, he prays that we would be strengthened with endurance and we would be strengthened by patience with joy. This is the work of the gospel. This is what Paul is praying for, that the work of the gospel would take its full effect in the hearts and the lives of believers. And they do all of this with a posture of thanksgiving. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Is gratitude always easy? Is it always easy to be thankful? Again, I think we're, just, we're in a unique historical moment with the church where it's just so, so easy to be ungrateful for the church. It's so easy to find the flaws. It's so easy to find the mistakes. It's so easy to highlight the shortcomings and the way that the church needs to grow and to improve. And so what's gonna have to happen for some of us is man, we are going to have to fight for gratitude. We're gonna have to ask the Lord to give us grateful hearts, to give us thankful hearts, that we would never lose sight of the goodness of the gospel and the goodness of his people. Again, don't hear me wrong on this this morning. Scandal and abuse and compromise with secular politics in the world, all of it is real, all of it is serious, all of it has to be dealt with. So please hear my heart on that and know my heart on that, but I hope you'll also hear this today as well. The very last thing we need in 21st century America right now are more cynical Christians. We don't need any more critics. We don't need any more self-appointed experts on everything that the church is doing wrong. What we desperately need today is in spite of the church's failures, in spite of the church's flaws, in spite of the church's problems, are followers of Jesus who are grateful. Who are grateful for Jesus, who are grateful for his church, and who are grateful for their place in his kingdom. Pleading for the gospel to do its work in our hearts means asking God to help us never lose sight of everything that he's done for us. And that's what Paul puts in view at the end of this section. Let's read verses 13 and 14. He closes his introduction with an announcement of the gospel. He reminds us, this is what God has done for us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul shows us that we should be people who proclaim the welcome of the gospel. We should be people who pray for the witness of the gospel. We should be people who without ceasing plead for the work of the gospel. And fourth, Paul shows us we should be people who preach and proclaim the wonder of the gospel. Preach and proclaim the wonder of the gospel. Now, going back to verse 12, Paul uses five words that are full of gospel wonder. He says, we have been qualified, we have been delivered, we have been transferred, we have been redeemed, and we have been forgiven. Let's work through each of these five briefly. Paul says we are qualified. Romans 3.23 tells us that all of us have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. So sin disqualifies us from being able to stand in the presence of God. You and I could never meet the necessary qualifications for salvation on our own, but God has met the qualifications for us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. We do not qualify for heaven. We are qualified for heaven. We don't qualify ourselves. Someone else qualifies us. And the wonder of the gospel is that God has qualified us when we had disqualified ourselves. Paul says that we have been delivered. 
We were trapped in the domain of darkness. We were incapable of seeing the wickedness of our sin. We were blind to the light of the glory of God. And in the same way that God had delivered his people from the bondage of slavery in Egypt centuries before, he has now delivered us from the power and the presence of sin and the bondage and slavery of sin in our lives. He changes our destination. And beyond that, we are transferred. So he delivers us from the domain of darkness, and then he transfers us to the kingdom of his son. That means we're under a new rule. We're under new reign. We're under new authority. We are no longer under the power and the oppression of sin, which means you and I are no longer helplessly resigned to our own sinful desires and temptations. We now live in the free country of the kingdom of his son who has defeated our sin and broken the chains of our bondage. We've been qualified, we've been transferred, we've been delivered. Paul says we've been redeemed. God has purchased us with his own blood and your freedom has been won. And because of this, he can also proclaim that we've been forgiven. The slate of your sin, past, present, and future, has been wiped clean by the grace and the mercy of God, and you are no longer defined by your past sin or your present struggle. You know, uh, our boys, for uh, their 10th birthday, we celebrate milestone birthdays, and for their 10th birthday, they have the opportunity um, to pick a one-on-one trip that we're going to do together. And so our oldest son, Gideon, turned 10 years old back in December, and so within reason, our boys get to pick uh, what trip we're going to take. So Gideon decided for his 10th birthday, his milestone birthday, that he wanted to do a day at Universal Studios in Orlando. Um, our, our family had made that trip on vacation last year. He decided he wanted to go again. So we spent a day at Universal. Now, Noah is this two big parks. There's a lot to do there. It's, a, it's really, really hard to cram everything in in one day, but we only had one day. And so, so something I tried to do to kind of help our day flow a little better, I bought those little express passes, you know, so we could skip the lines. Um, but if you've not been to Universal, the most popular ride at Universal is called Hagrid's Motorbike. And it's the one ride in the park you can't use an express pass on. And generally, you've got to wait at least two hours to ride it. And so uh, another trick that I learned from some from friends who had gone and said, hey, stay at one of the resort hotels because if you do, you get early access to the park. So my thinking was, okay, we'll go in there. We'll be first in line. As soon as the gates open, we'll run in there and we'll ride Hagrid's motorbike. Then we can use our express passes and everything else the rest of the day. So I find the cheapest resort hotel I possibly can because um, they're pricey. And, and But I found one and we got in there. And so we make the trip. We go to Orlando. We got the express passes. We got the hotel, the, the resort so that we could have early access into the park. So we're some of the first people in line. And as soon as we walk through the gates and we get over to where Hagrid's motorbike is, there are employees there saying, Hagrid's motorbike is not operational right now. Now I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like I, I have done everything within my power to avoid this exact scenario. Like I, I've planned this so like we, we did the, did everything we feel like we were supposed to do, did all the right things. We got the resort hotel, we got the express pass, can use none of it. And, and so I'm sitting here, man, we only have one day here, 13 hours. I'm like, we're gonna spend two of our hours standing in line for one single ride. And so just so that they'd send us off. They're like, hey, you can't stand here and wait for it to open. You gotta go ride other stuff. So we go to one other ride. And by the time we come back, it's a two hour and 15 minute wait. And so I'm just internally, I'm like, okay, how are we going to do this? Like, how are we going to fit this in and still get to do everything that Gideon wants to do today? And so I, I go up towards the front of the line where there's a few of their staff standing. I go to one of the guys, his name was Justin with a Y. I'll never forget this. 
And I was like, I just want to double check. You cannot use express passes on this ride, right? He goes, no, unfortunately you can't. I was like, tell me about the single rider line. Does that, does that speed it up? Like if we just, instead of trying to ride together, if we go individually, will that help us through? He goes, honestly, on this ride, not really. Since there's no express passes, everybody just hops in the single rider line. And we're like, okay, man, I appreciate it. And so we start walking away. We start heading towards the back of the line. And as we're walking away, Justin goes, hey, how many people are with you? I said, it's just the two of us. And he looks at me and he goes, do you guys want to ride? I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, do you guys want to ride? And I was like, well, yeah, we want to ride. He goes, I want you to come with me. And so Justin walks us over to the ride lockers. He opens up a locker for us. I stick my backpack in. He walks back to where the other staff were. And he says, I need to provide an escort. And then he walks us past the entire line that was a two hour and 15 minute wait to the very, very front to where the VIP guests go. And as we're walking up there, I'm like, dude, you do not have to do Like, we did not complain. We were not ugly with him. It was nothing. I was like, we, we were, we were going to stand in line. Like, you do not have to give us special treatment. He goes, well, it was my job to be somebody's hero today. And I'm like, bro, you succeeded for this, this 10-year-old. <laughs> I promise you. Like, job well done. You have made this particular 10-year-old boy and his dad very, very happy. So we skip the entire wait, go all the way to the front of the line, immediately ride it. As soon as we hop off, we go over. I was like, get him. We got to go tell him thank you. So we walk over. We're thanking him profusely. We're like, man, thank you so much. He goes, hey, you guys want to ride again? We're like, yes, we do. <laughs> we do. And so this ride that would have been a two-hour and 15-minute wait, we rode it twice in 15 minutes. Now listen, my best efforts that day were still only good enough to put me at the back of the line. Resort hotel, express passes, I did everything that I could possibly do to avoid that situation. And it still put me at the back of the line. And listen, this is what the gospel message tells us. Your best good, your best righteousness, no matter if you think you've checked every box, it's still only good enough to put you at the back of the line. But we have a hero. We have a savior who transferred us from the back of the line to the front of the line, who delivered us from the weight and brought us into his kingdom. Our best good efforts will never, ever be good enough. But we have one who has delivered us from the darkness and transferred us into his kingdom. Listen, you want to learn to love the church in spite of all of its flaws? Remember how Jesus has loved you in spite of yours. And your gratitude for the kindness that he has shown you in the gospel will become the gratitude and the foundation of thankfulness that you have for his church. So you bow your heads with me as we close together this morning. Father, we thank you so much for this good news. We thank you for the reminder this morning that you have qualified us that you have transferred us, you have redeemed us, you have forgiven us. You have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. So Lord, would we be people who leave this place this morning proclaiming the wonder of the gospel? Help us to see through the imperfections of your, of your church, to see the perfection of your son, Jesus. God, that we would labor, we would work together to see your church walking in holiness, walking in righteousness, conducting ourselves in a way that is pleasing to you. But Lord, in our desire to see the church corrected, don't ever let us lose our affection and our love and our thankfulness and our gratitude because you love your church and you call us to do the same.
So fathers, we come to the table this morning to remember the broken body and the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Will you captivate our hearts once again with the wonder of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for us? And help us to leave this place today rejoicing, rooted in joy for all that he is, for all that he continues to do. So Father, we come to this table this morning confessing our sin, acknowledging where we have fallen short of your glory. Will you grant us hearts of genuine repentance that we would turn from our sin, that we would walk in a manner that is pleasing to you, that we would bear fruit that's pleasing to you. We would conduct our lives in a way that is worthy of the Lord who dwells within us. Strike our hearts again with the wonder of the gospel. Help us to leave proclaiming it today as we remember it now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.